Before we start the episode, we want to take a moment to thank you for listening to LoveLink. If you're a fan of the show, it means a lot to us. To help support our podcast, we'd love it if you could take a moment to write a review in Apple Podcasts. It seems small, but it's so helpful in getting more listeners so we can keep the show going. Go to the LoveLink homepage in iTunes or the podcast app and leave us a review. Thanks so much, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Sometimes I think that we as women aren't even on our own to-do lists, or if we are, we're very low on those lists. So I think making that shift about how taking care of myself is important because only then I can be giving my best to those around me. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to love and connection in all forms. We're your hosts, Simone Humphrey and Sina Simon. Our guest today is Caroline Welch, CEO and co-founder of the Mindsight Institute in Santa Monica, California. Caroline has had many roles and made many pivots in her life from bank teller, waitress, English teacher in Japan, corporate litigator, mother, and CEO. Today, she's here to talk to us about her new book, The Gift of Presence, a mindfulness guide for women, a step-by-step guide to help women feel calmer and more grounded in their lives and in the multiple roles they may embody. So thank you so much for joining us, Caroline. Thank you for having me. I am really happy to be here today. So tell us a little bit about, just to start off, what made you write this book on presence and then the three P's underneath presence, purpose, purpose pivoting, pacing. <laughs> Did I get it right? <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that question. What made me write the book is that in my own pretty hectic life when I was full on practicing law. My kids were young between um, six and 10 or ages six and 10. And I was juggling so many roles. The one thing that kept me going was my mindfulness practice. And I had started that actually when I was an English teacher in Japan, uh, right after graduate school. And I lived there for three years. And I just came to appreciate going to this temple nearby where I was living in Hiroshima. And I just found it so calming. So fast forward when today I find myself at the Mindsight Institute and bringing the mindfulness concepts into the lives of mental health professionals, parents, coaches, lawyers, uh, and many other groups. It's ironic because I wouldn't have anticipated that decades ago, what I did in the temple in Japan would be really um, my first formal introduction to mindfulness. So I thought that there's a book in there somewhere, a book where I could hopefully offer a resource to women. And so that caused me to interview a hundred women, kind of test out some of my hypotheses and ultimately um, create what became the gift of presence, a mindfulness guide for women. 
And why women in particular? That's a great question. It's not that I've developed a special brand of mindfulness for women, but it's that I am most familiar with what it is to be a woman uh, in our society. And some of the things, because I did inter, um, did interview women from other countries as well, about a third of the women whom I interviewed for, were from around the world. Um, something we all share as women is all the roles we play. Mm -hmm. And something we share is, as women is that the expectations within the society, name any culture, any society for men and women are different. That's not to put a judgment on it about good or bad. It's just to embrace the fact that it's a different situation. Mm -hmm. And to give you a specific example of how women are differently situated than men. In my own practice, uh, as I mentioned, I was um, I practiced law and I still practice law, but now more the proactive calm side of the law, not the litigation side. But when, um, when I was deep in the, um, in the litigation trenches, um, the mindfulness was, it became so important to me because I had so many roles. Back to the roles. I was a lawyer. I was the mom of two kids. I was a caregiver um, in part for my parents. So these are roles that we assume. And what I would experience if, for example, I left my office to go and coach my daughter's volleyball team, there'd be kind of a buzz like, oh, she's not that committed to this job. This is back in the day when we were in offices. But I think even today, um, it's easier for a man to walk out and go coach a sports game because the response to that is more, wow, he's a great dad or they're great parents, not to just limit that to men in that case. But for a woman, since if we assume a career role, then we're expected to nail that and be on that in a way that the thinking then goes to, well, I, I dropped the ball on being a lawyer for those few hours. Mm -hmm. And my similarly situated male colleague is getting, if you will, extra credit. Mm -hmm. And all of this boils down to, uh, we have these ideas about what is a male role in our society and what is the female role. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Also thinking also about even within the home, how women are often expected to just take on more domestic roles, not even just parenting, but cleaning, purchasing, that this is a big piece of contention in relationships. And I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, kind of what I'm hearing is that it can be really beneficial, maybe even more so for women, given all these roles, that presence really plays much more of a kind of critical part than, than men. I'd be a little um, hesitant to do anything comparative and say more, mm -hmm. because I think there are plenty of uh, men as well who wish to expand their roles or more fully inhabit their roles as caregivers or as contributors in the home and aspire to take on more of what we call the worry work, like maybe 
one partner is really happy to drive the kids to the dentist, but the person behind the scenes scheduling the dentist or thinking about the dentist is often the mom. So I think mindfulness can, because it's a, it's a team, it's a partnership, mindfulness can help both men and women in terms of figuring out how this can best play out in the family. Mm-hmm. I can certainly identify with more of a need for presence after having a kid, after having a child, just suddenly, you know, you have so many demands on you. I mean, we can both identify with that um, in a totally different way than when you don't have children or when you're not a caregiver yet, whether it's to a parent or somebody else. It has a tremendous impact on stress, your ability to be in touch with yourself. Um, So that certainly really resonates that it is a different experience than than for for men so if we zoom out a little bit can you define presence like how do you define it in your life in your book yes i define presence as synonymous with mindful awareness or mindfulness and the definition I use is the one that you and your listeners may be very familiar with, the one of John Kabat-Zinn, the paying of attention in a special way on purpose to what's going on without judgment. And in his definition, the without judgment isn't articulated, but I believe that it is consistent with his approach that it is a piece of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about how presence helps women um, navigate these different roles and feel more, I mean, essentially, isn't it to feel more grounded in themselves as they are in these different, different roles? Or how, how do you think about how presence can help women in particular as they navigate these different, different roles in their lives? and expectations and pressures that are placed on them. Right. To what you're suggesting, it can help us, mindfulness can help us feel more grounded. Mm -hmm. And I think a large part of feeling grounded is being our most resilient selves. We do the best we can more and more moments. So maybe an example will help here. One of the women whom I interviewed um, is a single mom with a teenage daughter. And she's also one of the women when I uh, asked her, well, do you have a mindfulness practice? She was quick to say, no, no, I don't. But when I talked to her and heard how she behaves and some of her habits and how she conducts herself, I could see she has an informal mindfulness practice. And that's one of the takeaways today. If, if there's just one thing that a listener uh, hangs on to, I would like it to be that the informal moments are as important as the formal ones. That is, uh, in the case of this woman, what she described to me is that when she goes back to her apartment uh, after work each day, she feels her hand on the doorknob of the apartment and just takes a couple of breaths to honor that transition between her commute home, 
her work day and now going back into the house and seeing her teenage daughter. Mm -hmm. And the impact of that, she said, was immense because it allowed her to fully inhabit being home. And it allowed her to see that at some point, her daughter, uh, having been younger uh, when she was a preteen, would preteen would come running to the door to meet her when she came home. And all of a sudden, she's a teen, and she doesn't come to the door, and she's at her computer. And the woman whom I was interviewing had to go find her. And of course, you can imagine that wasn't a good technique uh, because her daughter was involved in whatever she was involved in and felt intruded upon. So with the presence of mind, the parent in this case was able to give that space to her daughter. So she adjusted, she would come home, go to her room, change her clothes, relax a moment, and then go out into the common space of the apartment and wait for her daughter to emerge. And it changed everything. So these are simple things, but we really uh, can best execute them when we are fully present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my goodness. How do you, how would you um, help people cultivate some of this presence? I mean, this sounds like there was something kind of intuitive with this woman that you described. If people feel very disconnected, I think it's really easy in our society, especially with our phones and if, if we're living in urban environments, to feel really unattuned to ourselves, unattuned to our environment. How, how do you cultivate presence in a, in a world that has so much noise? That's a great question. And the first thing to say is that uh, some of us may come somewhat more easily to being present. It could be. Uh, it, maybe it's intuition. Maybe it's uh, something we've learned from someone in our lives is something as simple as smelling the rain, noticing rainbows, being in touch with our sensory experiences. So that's that's one of the gateways to cultivating mindfulness is getting ourselves out of our heads. And another part of it that I talk about quite a bit in my book is that self-care is not selfish. And sometimes I think that we as women aren't even on our own to-do lists, or if we are, we're very low on those lists. So I think making that shift about how taking care of myself is important because only then I can be giving my best to those around me. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing. And it's, it's baby steps. It isn't that in one week or one retreat, we can fully be where we think we want or should be. It's a life's work, really. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen.
moment was brought to you by Nan, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. So you talk about um, purpose, pivoting, and pacing, these three Ps, and I wonder how they relate to this idea of presence. Um, and why you included these three Ps in the book. What's the, yeah, what's the relationship between, between them? I'm happy to explore that because it was such an important part of shaping the book. So once it became clear to me that presence or mindful awareness can offer a foundation, then I had to figure out what things might most resonate with a reader in terms of really seeing how this looks in our lives. Purpose emerged and was one of the, became one of the three because we have as much research about, well, no, I shouldn't say as much, but we have a lot of research about the importance of articulating a purpose in our lives. And that, first of all, requires that we become very present with what has meaning for us, what our values are. Purpose gives us that direction in life. And it comes out of our goals and uh, what it is that, that gets us up in the morning, basically. And then pivoting seemed to be a very valuable player here because life is change. And we have or we do what's called, what I call, crisis pivoting. That's what happened to all of us in the pandemic. All of a sudden, we were forced to make changes and pivot versus what I call proactive pivoting, where you get very present with what's going on in your career or in a relationship, and you ask yourself the hard questions is this relationship still serving me? Is this career serving me? Is this particular job serving me? These are the proactive things. Since we humans don't like change, it's often that we make change when they are thrust upon us rather than taking time to make a proactive pivot. And finally, the pacing part comes in because Thankfully, we all have longer health spans now. We have, I'm sure in, in your own lives, you've, uh, you've seen uh, people around you have two, three, four different careers and different family situations and different relationships. It's hard to say to ourselves, there's time, but there is time. It's kind of, um, I'm thinking about what Simone referenced a moment ago about our devices and our distractibility. It's so easy to buy into the immediate. Like, I really have to decide, is this my career path right now? Um, or even a parenting decision, whatever it is. But the fact is, there are so few things that really have to be decided urgently. And it's so helpful to have this pacing concept in mind and so counter to what we are surrounded with every day when it comes to speed and getting things done and knowing uh, what it is we're doing next. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, and Simona and I talked about this before, like you've had many different 
careers, different experiences. You lived in Japan, you know, you were a lawyer, you still are a lawyer, you know, but you're also a teacher and many other things and you're a CEO. And I wonder how you have pivoted in your life and how you knew when it was time to pivot. Like, what was that process like that, that developing that internal knowing that, okay, this is a moment to shift or begin shifting, looking in a different direction? That's a great question. And uh, yes, I have had a few different opportunities for pivoting in my life. I think, uh, for example, uh, when it came to making a change when our two kids were ages a year and a half and five, I was uh, a corporate litigator working 75 hours a week, uh, largely for Japanese clients, which took me across the international dateline, which took away all my weekend time. And it became clear to me if I would just sit with myself and say, how is this working for me? How's the role I'm doing as mom or as partner or in the house and in my practice? And so in that case, mindfulness was helpful because I could take the time I had the practice. I could look at how this is feeling. That was my first indicator. And then I made a proactive pivot. It isn't that I uh, checked out at my job or my firm, you know, merged and shut down, which would have been more of a crisis pivot, but it was really a proactive, I need to find a different career. Not, not career as in, I still want to be a lawyer. And that's another thing about pivoting is that sometimes when we're about to make a change, we're like, yeah, nothing's working for me. I need to just throw out this whole situation. Well, the fact is that some parts of it, like I love being a lawyer. So in the case of the pivot I made away from corporate litigation, my next position was as an in-house lawyer. And I was Judge Judy's lawyer on the production set for uh, a couple of years. And the beauty of that position was that it started out with only requiring four days a month of work because I would just be in the studio when we were taping cases. So that's um, one of the pivots and how it unfolded for me. And if you had asked me ahead, because of course we all have fear of failure and fear of the unknown, and we have a um, neuro loss aversion phenomenon where, you know, what I'm going to has to be at least twice as uh, beneficial as my current situation. I couldn't have imagined something better than, well, I could have perhaps imagined, but it's not an easy choice to step out of what you're doing. And if you told me I was going to be able to find a job for four days a month, I would have said, no, not in the law, impossible. But I did. Especially if you're enjoying aspects of the work and you're good at it and you are thriving in a sense, then um, it can be harder to walk away and risk pivoting into something, into the un, you stepping into the unknown. Right. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious it, how, how purpose also played a role in this because I, you know, there's the identity of mother, identity of lawyer, starting this um, this company, the 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 institute that you started around. Correct. Presence. How how does purpose 
How did you, how were you able to identify purpose? And I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about that piece. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because there are a few myths that surround purpose. One is that our purpose is one and done. Like you figure it out and now you're set for life. Or that there's one big purpose that should be shepherding your work in all the things you do. So I'd like to unpeel that a little bit. And the first thing to say is that for each role we play, we have a purpose. So, uh, for example, both of you as new moms, uh, let's say your purpose is to be the most resilient, open mom you can be. And then when it comes to your careers, and your clinical practices or the listeners, whatever careers they may have, the definition of what the purpose is in that career may be different. And it doesn't have to be grand, like, you know, my purpose is to um, do uh, planetary change with climate control or climate, you know, issues or something. It can be very much to be a good team member, to do the best you can with whatever it is you've set out in your work projects to do right now. So that's how the purpose in action can look. I think there can be a lot of pressure on women and men in our culture to have a big purpose. You know, I, I speak to a lot of young people who are stressed out about finding their purpose. Like when they hear, you know, like I have to find my passion. I have to find the thing that's going to make me successful. I have to find my path. And um, it can be a real challenge to kind of slow it down and look at how you can find purpose now. And also while still maintaining dreams and but also helping people to discover their purpose rather than they have to find some grand purpose, discover it immediately, and, and, and then that has to be the thing. Um, I just think our culture has a very rigid conception of this idea of purpose and uh, passion. Right, and you've reminded me that another purpose myth is that you need passion to have purpose. I think we're kind of passion obsessed and we have heard ourselves at least i now with two adult children i've heard so many parents and teachers say just find your passion and everything will flow from that and i think it's important to realize that Many of us live very purposeful lives, but we wouldn't say we are passionate about how that's unfolding in our lives. So that would be the first thing to say about that. And um, the second thing, because um, Sina, you mentioned um, young people who can be challenged finding their purpose and that weighs on them. There is research that tells us that finding the purpose, we think we need to search it out somewhere or that we're going to uncover it, but it is within. And there is a certain period after which 
we are most content or at peace if we have purpose. So it's one thing when you're at a, in a certain age bracket where you are still finding, but at some point we humans need to embrace that I have purpose. This is my purpose. And maybe in part that also dovetails with what um, we're talking about here about grand purposes. Very few of us can become public figures and be known for something grand worldwide. But all of us can be leaders in our own families, our own workplaces, and the community around us. And that connection to it. I mean, right, I love that. It kind of integrates purpose and presence all in one. Yeah. So it's clear from your book that you like poetry. You're also a writer. And a lot of these concepts, I'm thinking about Buddhist tradition and sort of the stories that often capture complicated concepts. And I'm wondering, and we spoke a little bit before we started this interview, you, you named a couple poems that have been really inspiring to you. I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd want to share with us and our, our listeners about um, how some of these concepts have been captured in, in others' writing. Yes, I appreciate the opportunity to contribute a couple of poets' names here and to even share a couple of passages from uh, poems that have recently uh, been quite inspirational to me. So first I would like to give a shout out to the beautiful work of Diane Ackerman. We were talking, and she is a, for those of you who aren't familiar, familiar with her work, um, she's a poet and a naturist and an author. And what is so beautiful about her work is how she writes about nature and animals. And she's also, by the way, the author of The Zookeeper's Wife. Uh, the Zookeeper's Wife. I was going to say The Zookeeper's Life, but no, it's wife. And, and uh, as, I, as I referenced earlier, having our senses activated can calm down those circuits in our brain that perpetuate the thought loops. So the default mode network, that is where we go when we have no particular direction is often to our thoughts and our thought loops. So if we can intentionally activate our side sensory circuits as we can by nature or by feeling our hands on the steering wheel when we're driving, or it just comes automatically also when you're interacting with small children, it's very hard not to be in the moment with them. So uh, I think Diane's work is uh, very valuable for that in the moment uh, that it, it brings us to. And a second uh, resource I want to add here is a, the work of a new poet who lives on the east coast of the United States. Her name is Kate Bear, and her first book was called What Kind of Woman? And it is full of beautiful poems for uh, women in the trenches and all the roles we play. So I, I would highly recommend that as an inspirational piece. And finally, to read a couple of passages, the first thing I want to share is part of David White's uh, Still Possible poem. 
and it's a couple of pages long, but the, um, the part of it that I would like to read is the following, and this is about eight lines long. It is still possible to be kind to yourself, to drop constraints and fall often to your knees. It's not too late now to bow to what beckons, the world still swimming around you as you kneel transfigured by what sweeps on, it's still possible to leave every fearful former self in the wake of newly heard words issuing from an astonished mouth. Yeah, and uh, the, the last thing I'd like to read is uh, from the work of Stephen Dunn, and he has a book called Here and Now, one of his uh, poetry books, which of course I'd be attracted to by its very title. So the um, first stanza of his book, Landscape with Friends, is as follows. Impatient with but careful of life's hazards, and in regular negotiations with courage, there ahead of me, I'd see a landscape, say meadow grass with patches of bluebells, in other words, a facade, and beyond it would be a forest also with its concealments, which I'd felt no need to investigate. It was pleasure enough to have read about all those animals and insects and their acceptable murders and subterranean labors and how the trees and flowers nicely cover it all up, leaving what we call beauty. Nice. Beautiful poems. Really Thank lovely. You. Yeah, yeah. The, f the first poem also really brought up this idea of, you know, we can be disconnected, we can be really critical, we can be harsh on ourselves, and in any given moment, we can shift that. Mm. You know, I think oftentimes we really tell ourselves because we're not doing it or because we're not having it part of a regular practice or because whatever the shoulds that somehow we can't just jump into it. And this idea, and I don't know if I'm, I'm being clear right now, but this idea of just, we can be present starting right now in this moment, feels really profound and, and really important in all of this. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be a lot of work to get there. It can just be happening in, this, in the next moment. In this moment. very moment, you yeah. could be unpresent and then shift to presence from mm -hmm. one moment to the other. And that's a beautiful thing to even be aware of that. Yes, you've just put into a nutshell the really most important takeaway of this um, this time we've had together, uh, I think, is that you can do this. It's accessible. And the only moment, because I'm sure all your listeners and the three of us have come to terms with the fact that we can't control world events, we can't control other people. All we can control is this moment and our response to it. And as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the only uh, moment we have dominion over is this moment. And, and uh, I also just wanna add uh, that um, it is so easy to get hard and, and kind of uh, judge ourselves if we can't uh, 
keep our our minds on task or pay attention but the moment at which as you indicated Simone re- the moment you recognize that you're not present you fix the problem you're back and how many things in life where we realize we have a problem we need to repair something it's instant it's done that is so refreshing to me. And so I, I never, once I realized that, I never went to that dark place like, oh, I can't even do a simple meditation. I can't even be present for two minutes with my young child. Once I realized, wait, now I realize I'm back. That's what it is. It's a very hopeful message for everybody who's listening. I hope so, and absolutely. And it's a muscle too, right? I mean, that this is something that can be really difficult. It's like meditation. The first time you do it, it's really challenging. You you recognize all the thoughts that are passing. And then the more you do it, the more you can calm those thoughts, the more you can manage them, the more we can be present. So, I mean, I, I love the, the term practice because it doesn't set up yourself for success or failure. It's It's constant. Yes, and I I think there are many parallels between physically working out and mentally working out, if you will. And within the realm of mentally working out, maybe walking meditation doesn't work for you, but sitting does. Or maybe going in the forest doesn't work for you, but some other experience does. Listening to the waves at the ocean or watching ducks on a lake, whatever those things are, it's a work in progress progress and it's not the same for everyone and not everyone resonates with paying attention to their breath some people get uncomfortable with that so they need a visual object or sounds or something else so it is a life's work and our minds never are empty of thoughts it's not about that it's about continuing to build this muscle of how we can best relate to what comes our way So as we're coming to an end of this interview, um, we're so curious to hear about your upcoming projects, anything that you're working on right now that our listeners should know about. Uh, yes, there's, there's always, there are always things percolating. Uh, this will be a very exciting summer and, uh, some of the things that, uh, I do are repeated annually. So, For this year, I'm very excited to be heading in a couple of weeks to the south of France where I'll be leading with Adriana Copeland, a mindfulness workshop for women. And we will be focusing on not only mindfulness practices, but also forest bathing. So that's a very exciting event and we will be offering it at least once a year, maybe twice. And so I always look forward to that. Later this summer, we'll be, uh, Dan and I will be at a conference in Melbourne, Australia, which is going to be dealing with childhood trauma. So we have a lot of different things coming up and my website, carolinewelch.com has upcoming events. And of course, we also offer courses built around the work of Dr. Dan Siegel, my co-founder at the Institute, and also my life partner. Give a shout out to him. We have lots of resources. Who we also just interviewed recently. Yes. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, I'm in good company then. You have a wonderful roster. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, can you just tell us what forest bathing is? Just so our... <laughs> oh, of course. It's not what you think. People think about nakedness and swimming suits and all of that. That's the association. And I do have to uh, confess that Dr. Adriana Copeland is the expert, the, the licensed guide in forest bathing, and I haven't experienced it yet. But uh, my understanding is that it is getting us in touch with our senses and we use the forest as the platform for doing that. And the term forest bathing uh, comes from Japan and Japan has many forests that are not harvested. So the Japanese government put together the fact that it has a stressed population with the fact that it has many beautiful forests. So they started offering forest bathing walks for people to be able to relax and have more well-being. And fast forward now, many countries and, and uh, um, uh, communities are coming to appreciate the benefits of forest bathing and our own U.S. Forest Service um, is, I believe, looking for guides, certified guides in forest bathing and uh, there's more and more research on the benefits of that. Very cool. Amazing. Yeah. That workshop in the south of France sounds incredible. I, I, I wish, I wish, I wish we, we were there. there. Yeah. <laughs> put, put it on your list one day. You won't believe it, but you will have a window and yeah. hopefully you'll consider coming. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, Caroline, thanks so much for being here. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Yeah. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Loveling show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.